All right, welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm sure there may be some others on their way, but we're gonna go ahead and get started because this study, I need every minute I can get. Um, this is the core. In case you haven't noticed, what we've been doing is we're kind of building up a momentum. Now, for those of you who were here from the very beginning, obviously you are the most informed as it relates to what we're teaching on practical Christianity in light of last day events. We started with how close is close, and we got a chance to just see a lot of events taking place, the rapidity of those events, and how it's showing us that we are closer than we've ever thought before. Then after that, realizing how close we are, yet seeing that many of us unfortunately are experiencing this Laodicean disease, this disease where we think more of ourselves than we should, and we're not allowing ourselves to be sanctified by obedience to God's truth. Therefore, we realize we need help. And that's why the next study was called Help Jesus, Where Are You? Because we need the help that can only come from Jesus Christ, because he's really our only help. And we saw that Jesus, he is no longer in the outer court. He's no longer in the holy place, but he's now where? He's in the most holy place. What's his work? He's doing the work of the blotting out of sin. And therefore, we are now at the point where we understood, according to the Great Controversy, page 488, that Christ's position and work must be clearly understood by the people of God. But now I want to show you some other points that I think are most important, because it's not simply enough to know Christ's position in his work, but I'm going to show you something that maybe you never even considered this before. As we go deeper and deeper into our understanding of what is it that constitutes practical Christianity in light of these last day events. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a word of prayer and then we're going to immediately go into our study. So let us go ahead and let's have a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, just for the wonderful fellowship that we are having throughout this weekend. We thank you for all of the messages that are being given. And we thank you, Lord, that we see a resounding sound that Jesus is being lifted up and he's coming soon. But, Lord, we realize that before Christ comes, Jesus said that there will be a crisis, that we must know how to face it so that we might be truly prepared for the coming of the Lord. Father, I pray that you will help us understand some gems of truth as we delve into your word to understand our position and our work. For these and all of the blessings we ask, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. What we're going to do is we're going to go ahead, and I want to invite you, in fact, let's go ahead, and I'm going to read a quotation to you first. I'm going to start this way. In this very same book, Great Controversy, if you don't have this in your library, I'm going to encourage you to put it in your library. This book has been relevant to God's people from the day it was written, but it is most relevant, especially to us now. So therefore, I want to really encourage you, if you don't have this book in your library, please have it in your library, and don't let it just sit there to look pretty. Don't let it collect dust, but study it, and make sure your lives are in line with the principles that come out of it. Now, here's something that's very interesting. I read to you from Great Controversy, page 488, and when I read it, I stated that the subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. It says, all need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. But now what I want to do is I want you to understand this. Now, would we agree we need to understand the position and work of our great high priest, Jesus Christ? Do we see why that's so important? All right. Well, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read another quotation to you from page 423 of the very same book, Great Controversy, and is relevant to the study that we're doing right now. This is what it says. In Great Controversy, page 423, it says the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It says it opened to view a complete system of truth. So that's why I told you, I said the sanctuary message, it gives the complete gospel. It shows us the whole gospel. Now watch this. It says it opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. Now, did you catch that? Before we talked about the position and work of who? Jesus Christ. What's his position? Where is he? He's in the most holy place. And what's his work? He's doing the work of the blotting out of sins in the most holy place. All right, good. Now, 
Did you catch this? It says this time, the sanctuary doesn't just simply reveal God's work and his position, but it also said, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. So that means that there's not simply a position and work of Jesus Christ as it relates to the sanctuary, but there's also a position and work for you and I. And I wonder, how many of us know what our position in our work is? And you see, if you and I don't know our position in our work, could it be that we will find ourselves like Samson, blind, going around in circles? And the blind leading the blind, the Bible says they end up falling where? Into a ditch. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to show you something that echoes the very same point. In fact, I'm going to show you where the servant of the Lord got that point from. Let's go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to show you exactly where she got that point from. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is what I love about the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of prophecy is a magnifying glass. And I love that because when you really think about the work of a magnifying glass, does a magnifying glass put something that's not there there? Does a magnifying glass take away something that was once there and then take it away? The purpose of a magnifying glass is to simply make clear that which was already there. And so it is that the spirit of prophecy you will find when we read quotes from any of the books of the writings of Ellen White, what we're really doing is we're reading points that came from the Bible magnified. And here's exactly what I mean. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let's go ahead and start at verse 1. And I want you to see what's happening here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, it says, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Now watch this. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent. We should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, actually, verses seven through ten tells us the sins of Israel of old. It goes through all of these sins that the Israel, children of Israel did back in those days, everything from fornication to complaining and so on and so forth. Now, verse 11 summarizes the explanations from verses 1 to 10 in this manner. And I want you to see how verse 11 brings this out. Let's look at verse 11. Let's read it together. It says, now all these things happen unto them for what? And samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Question, what does ensamples mean? What does ensamples? It said all these things were written for ensamples. Now, if you got yourself a good Bible then that means that you more than likely have a cross-reference right in the middle, and it more than likely will have a word written there to tell you what that word ensamples means. And if none of you have it, well, that means you probably have an okay Bible. The word ensamples, what do you think that word means? Example, but what's the word? Now, how did you come with that word? Did it say it in your cross-reference? Amen. The word types actually comes up. And I want you to get this now. Verses 1 through 10 of 1 Corinthians 10 was actually reviewing the history of Israel. God's people, while they left Egypt on their way to Canaan land. And the, the, the things that took place in between. Here it is that now all of a sudden the Bible says that all of these things that happened with the children of Israel was an example unto whom the ends of the world are come. And an ensample is a type. Now, the question is this then, what's a type? What does it mean when something's a type? You ever heard of it like prototype? You ever heard these type of terms? What's a type? When it says all these things happen unto them for types. What do you think that means? Like kind of like a model, okay. You ever heard Jesus when he said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man? That means that Noah's day was a type of what was going to happen in the last days. 
So you can use terms like replica or what have you, but basically what it means is that the things that happened with the children of Israel was a type of what's going to happen upon those whom the ends of the world are come. One of the greatest ways that I get young people excited about reading the Old Testament is to help them understand that when you read the Old Testament, it's not past truth, it's present truth. Because everything that happened in the Old Testament, those different incidences and what have you with the children of Israel, those are actual types of things we're going to see in our day today. So therefore, the things that took place in the time of the children of Israel was a type of what God's people upon whom the ends of the world are come are going to experience in the last days. Are we living in the time of the end of the world? Are we living in that time? You better believe we are. So therefore, I wonder, when Jesus went into the most holy place in 1844, what day was that called in the Bible? The day of atonement, at one minute. The day of atonement. So my question to you is this then. If Jesus went into the most holy place, just like the Day of Atonement teaches us, and he had his position in his work, could it be that we would find out what our position in our work is by looking at what was the responsibility of the children of Israel while the high priest was in the most holy place on the Day of Atonement? Does that make sense? Let me make sure you, let me make sure you get it. If Jesus is the fulfillment of the high priest who would go into the most holy place to do a specific work, then could it be that when we study the Day of Atonement, looking at the lives of God's people, what were they supposed to be doing while the high priest was in the most holy place? Does that make sense? So then let's go ahead and let's find out what they were doing, because whatever they were doing in type, we should be doing in anti-type. All right? Let's go find out what's our position in our work. Let's go to the book of first or Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. It is right here that you will find your work. These are the things that were to preoccupy the mind and the body and the full being of God's people when the high priest enters the most holy place. Jesus has entered the most holy place since when? Since 1844. Therefore, you and I must also enter into the most holy place in our work and in our position. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to read Leviticus chapter 23. We're going to read verses 27 to 32. Now I'm going to ask if there could be a volunteer for us who could read verses 27 to 32 with a nice, loud voice. Leviticus 23, verses 27 to, 20, to 32. Who would be so kind? as to read that for us. 27 to 32? Yes, please. Also on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be an holy convocation unto you, and he shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And ye shall do no work in that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul is clean that shall not be afflicted, in that same day he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. He shall do no manner of work, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and he shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month. Beautiful. Verse 32. Amen. Four instructions were given in that text. In those few verses of scripture, you and I have the four instructions that we are supposed to be doing while Christ is in the most holy place right now. The first instruction that we were given is that we must afflict our souls. That was the first instruction. Afflict your souls. The second instruction was what? Oh, actually, no, I'm so sorry. No, 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 no. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Before afflicting your soul, you first had to have a holy convocation. 
Next step was afflict your souls. The third step was offer an offering made by fire And the last thing was, do no work. These are our four instructions right there. Right there, you get an opportunity to see this is exactly what we're supposed to be doing right now. Since Jesus has gone into the most holy place since 1844, that literally constitutes your life and my life if we want to be prepared for the coming crisis and the coming Christ. That is our four-point duty right there. So therefore, we now have to, you know, kind of anti-type this thing. We have to be able to understand, okay, well, how do I today have a holy convocation? Now, the first thing I'm going to ask you is this. What does the word convocation mean? Because that, that, that should be one of the first things that we should understand so that way we can rightly make a proper and biblical interpretation. What does convocation mean? Not for transformation, but say it again, sir. For gathering or an uh, assembly. Convocation. The word convocation means a gathering or an assembly. So therefore, God says, children of Israel, when the high priest goes into the most holy place, he says, the number one thing I want you to do is he says, I want you to gather together for a holy assembly. What does that mean? Let's find out some implications here. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. What does this holy convocation really mean, or this holy assembly? Well, point number one, let's make sure we understand what the text is saying versus what the text is not saying. The text is not saying that we should start assembling or gathering with individuals just so that we can be there. Why do I make that point? Because for the children of Israel who understood that they were living in the time of the most holy place where they knew eternal decisions were going to be made, they did not have time to just hang out with old friends that were in the world and of the world and just talk about the good old worldly days. They did not have that kind of convocation. They did not have that kind of assembly. They only got together to talk about, to discuss, and to keep their minds on that which was holy. So just in this instruction, making it practical, because we're living in the time of the most holy place, we should not go around developing a bunch of friendships simply for the sake of having friendship. We should understand that God is actually calling us that we are to develop holy convocations, which means that when we go and introduce ourselves to people, when we meet people, when we talk with individuals, even if it's old friends from back in the days, our purpose of meeting with them is not to simply discuss the good old back in the days. Our purpose is not simply to go ahead and have a business meeting. Our purpose is not simply to go ahead and establish some leisure activity. In our minds, we are constantly saying, Lord, how can I make this an opportunity to lift up the name of Jesus? Holy assembly. Keep your minds on that which is holy. How do I know this? Go to Isaiah 26. In Isaiah, the 26th chapter, you will see one of the reasons why God calls us to keep our minds on that which is holy. In Isaiah, the 26th chapter, you will see what the Bible says. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. In Isaiah 26, I want you to see what the Bible says right there in verse 3. In Isaiah 26 and verse 3, look at what the Bible says. The Bible says, thou wilt keep him in what kind of peace? Perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. You cannot have perfect peace when you are having worldly discussion. You cannot have perfect peace when you are having sinful discussion. You cannot have perfect peace when you are having sensual discussion. God says that all of our gatherings as children of God living in the very last hours of earth's history during the time of the most holy place is to keep our minds stayed on thee. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 that God is holy. So therefore, we should keep our minds on that which is holy. Now, 
Go to Hebrews chapter 10 with me. There's a deeper implication that God wants to bring out. First of all, our assembling together is not simply to just get together with people. You would be amazed, parents, how we can spare our children from so much practices of sin if we would simply understand that every event that our children get into, from their education all the way down to their leisure, the theme should always be holiness. Holiness. One of the reasons why we're seeing teen pregnancy, one of the reasons why we're seeing young people who want to leave the church, one of the reasons why we're seeing all of these different issues in the church is because somewhere along the lines in the Christian experience, our minds have been taken off of God and have beheld that which was unholy, and by beholding, we become changed. But in Hebrews chapter 10, the Bible brings out another point that I think is very, very important for us to understand. This is what the children of Israel were supposed to be doing during the time of the most holy place. Number one, it was holy assembling. But I want you to see something here in Hebrews 10. Notice what the Bible says, starting at verse 22. Bible says in verse 22, let's read it together. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto what? Love and to good works, not forsaking the what? assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Did you see that God actually pointed out one of the reasons why we assemble together in the first place? This is going to be a major correction on many of us. What did the text say is the reason why we assemble together? Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but what did else did it say? Wait a minute, hold up. So are you telling me that the reason why I go to church is to strengthen you and you and you and you? And do you mean to tell me that you all go to church so that you can strengthen each other? So that means that when I go to church, I'm not going to church to hear my favorite preacher. Because if I'm doing that, then my motive is wrong. Is that right? Is that what you're telling me? Are you telling me that it is wrong for me to just show up at a church because my favorite choir is there about to sing? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Brothers and sisters, do you understand that God is literally trying to show us that when we come together, the purpose is that we might strengthen one another? How many times do we come to church with selfish motives? We're coming to get out of it what's good for me. And we don't understand that what God is saying is that, of course, I'm going to bless you. But my greatest blessing for you is when you understand that you are there to be there for someone else to help strengthen them. This was a time of pressing together. In fact, let me read something to you. This comes from volume one of the testimonies, page 113. It says, there is too much of an independence of spirit indulged in among the messengers. It says, this must be laid aside and there must be a drawing together of the servants of God. It says, there has been too much of a spirit to ask, am I, brother, am I my brother's keeper? Said the angel, yea, thou art thy brother's keeper. Thou shouldst have a watchful care for thy brother, be interested for his welfare, and cherish a kind, loving spirit towards him. Press together, press together. God designed that man should be open-hearted and honest without affectation, meek, humble, with simplicity. This is the principle of heaven. God ordered it so. God is calling us to press together. When you and I come to church, you see, when an individual comes to church, and if that's the only time that you're having a deep religious experience is one day a week, then that's exactly what you are, a weak Christian. And the devil will always take advantage of weak Christians. But when you understand that from Sunday... When the sun sets Saturday night, when the beginning of that first day of the week takes place, you are pressing in and coming closer to Jesus Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, 
Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. What happens is that when the Sabbath comes, you are now in a position because you have been so filled with the Word of God and with the Spirit of God that when you come to church to assemble, you will have nothing but the praises and outpouring of that which you have received all throughout the week. And it will exhort and strengthen those who are going through some serious trials. The children of Israel understood their accountability to each other because the Israelite understood the priest, the high priest is in the most holy place. This is a time of judgment. They had to help their brother and their sister stay focused. And you and I have been given the same commission that we are to go to assemble, not so we can hear our favorite song, not so we can hear our favorite preacher, but we are coming together to assemble so that we can help the brethren and the brethren can help us to stay focused while Christ is in the most holy place about to finish his work. That was one of the pieces of instruction that was given to the children of Israel. And that is given to us. Amen. The next one was afflict our souls, afflict our souls. Now, afflicting one soul, it had so much implication, but I want to give you one point right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's go to the book of 2 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, I want you to see how God gives us a very clear instruction on one of the things of the, uh, one of the points that comes out of the affliction of one soul is found in the book of second Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to go ahead and read verse five. I'm going to ask someone if they can read that for us. Second Corinthians chapter 13. And we're looking at verse five. What does the Bible say? Reprobates. Amen. Another point of afflicting one's soul was that there was a tremendous need for self-examination. In order for one to truly see, remember, the high priest was in the most holy place. He had to do the work of blotting out of sin. But the only way God can have a clean sanctuary, he has to have a clean what? People. So therefore, one of the greatest works of God's people on the Day of Atonement was that they spent much time contemplating, is there still sin in my life? They were examining themselves. Your job, brothers and sisters, is that every day you are to be examining yourself. Is there still sin in my life? And the reason why this is so important is because you heard Brother uh, uh, Myers a little earlier. He stated idolatry is one of the last sins, uh, one of the sins of the last days. Is that right? Now, let me ask you a question. Is there any idolaters in this room? Any idolaters? Anybody? My sister said we all are. She took a stand for all of you. How many of you are in agreement with my sister? Would you all, would we say we're all idolaters? Well, you know, the reason why I asked that question is because now, now listen, I don't want you to say yes because you just. You know, you, you, you say, yes. I mean, I want you to understand this. Go to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is what I mean by examining yourself. Now, we know that idolatry is a sin. It is the second commandment where God said, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. Don't bow down to them. Don't worship them. So on and so forth. So God made it clear idolatry is truly a sin. But what I want to do is I want to show you in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15. I want you to see something here so that way you can understand. Because I asked the question, hey, is anybody in here an idolater? Now, usually when I go places, quite honestly, individuals are very honest. They're like, no. <laughs> you know, they're like, I might be other things, but I ain't no idolater. <laughs> you know, they might say, I'm not, I'm not an idolater. But you know what? The question is this. Could it be that maybe we are idolaters and didn't even know it? Let's look at the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15. And I want you to see what the Bible says right here. We're going to start at verse 22, and then we'll go ahead and look at verse 23. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, in verse 22, there's always different ways you can ask a question. I asked you the question if you're an idolater, but when we finish reading this text, I'm going to ask you the question again, and you'll see what I mean. The Bible says in verse 22, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of what? 
witchcraft and what? Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Now, I asked you before if there are any idolaters in the room, and, you know, it took a while for folks to acknowledge it, but let me ask you another question. Is anybody in this room that's stubborn? Any stubborn people in this room? Did you see what the Bible just said? The Bible equated idolaters and stubborn people together. Did you catch that? Did you see what the text said? So could you imagine, here we are, coming to church Sabbath after Sabbath, thinking all is well because I took a day off from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. I'm a Sabbath keeper, we say. But can you imagine that while we were going around professing this, we were idolaters because we still have stubbornness in our lives. And in the eyes of God, a stubborn person is just like an idolater. In the eyes of God, a rebellious person is just like a witch. In the eyes of God, do you understand the reason why we must guard jealously the hour of prayer, searching of the scripture, and self-examination like Gospel Workers, page 100 tells us? We have to guard jealously that hour of self-examination because we are living in the time of judgment. God is making eternal decisions right now, and God cannot allow someone who still has sin in their heart to be with him for eternity. He can't afford to do it because Christ cannot afford to have a Lucifer part two. He can't afford it. You guys all have insurance policies, perhaps, because you can't afford to lose certain things. You got to make sure there's a way that you can get it back in the event you lose it. Is that right? God says, I have an insurance plan. He says, my insurance plan is that I'm going to develop a people that love me so much that they would prefer to die than commit one sin ever again against me. God will not let sinners into heaven. He can't afford to. The only sinners that are, that are going to make it are those who have been saved by grace and have been completely converted and now have victory over sin. So therefore, examination of oneself plays a role in the affliction of the soul. Now, let me help you out. Because you might say, well, how, 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 do I, how do I examine myself? How do I do this? Did you know that God actually has a beautiful answer? It's found in the book of Ezra, chapter 8. Go to Ezra. Here is a tool that's going to help you to know how do I properly examine myself. Well... In the book of Ezra, chapter 8, we get a nice clue. What, what's, what's something that's going to help me to properly examine myself? And it's found right here in the book of Ezra, chapter 8. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. In Ezra, chapter 8, listen to what the Bible says. Beautiful point. It says, then, in verse 21, Ezra 8, verse 21. I want you to see this. This is, this is fantastic. This goes along with the affliction of one's soul. See, we're taking the word of God. We're making it practical. We know what to do now. It says, then I proclaimed a fast. A what? Fast. A fast. There at the river of Ahava that we might do what? Afflict our souls before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones, and for all our substance. So what was it that assisted the children of Israel in their afflicting or examination of oneself? What else did they do? They fasted. So somebody may say, well, Brother Lemon, wait a minute. Are you telling me that since 1844 I'm not supposed to eat? Because if that were the case, we'd be a room full of skeletons. Everybody'd be dead because you can't stop eating since 1844. But let me give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Number one, I'm going to read a quotation to you from the book Councils on Diets and Foods. In the book Councils on Diets and Foods, this is what it says on page 187. This is sweet. Listen to this. It says, difficult points of present truth have been reached by the earnest efforts of a few who were devoted to the work. It says, Fasting and fervent prayer to God have moved the Lord to unlock his treasuries of truth to their understanding. What was it that moved God to unlock the treasuries? Fasting 
and fervent prayer. Not only that, what exactly is this fasting? It says on page 188, Councils on Diets and Foods, it says the true fasting which should be recommended to all is the abstinence from every stimulating kind of food and the proper use of wholesome, simple food which God has provided in abundance. So therefore, is God saying that we should just stop eating since 1844? No. What is he saying? He says, remove all the stimulating kinds of foods. He says, completely remove it from your diet. And then he says, and judiciously use good, wholesome food. And do you know, now that's a quote from the spirit of prophecy, right? But did you know that's in the Bible? You ever hear people say, oh, well, I eat this in moderation. You ever hear people say that? I eat this in moderation. You know, I, 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 I drink alcohol in moderation, some people say. I smoke in moderation. I eat chocolate in moderation. And I do all these things in moderation. And the world has a concept of moderation that's different from God. Do you want to see what biblical moderation is? Go to 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 22. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22, here is an example of biblical moderation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 22. What does the Bible say? Somebody, nice strong voice, if you could read that for us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 22. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 22. What does the Bible say? abstain from all appearance of evil. Now, I love this because God did not say abstain from all evil. Is that what he said? Did God say abstain from all evil? Nope. What did he say? He said abstain from all appearance of evil. If anything is evil, if anything is bad, if anything is not good, God says stay away from it. Leave it alone. Don't even look at it. That's how David got himself in trouble. Started looking too long. And then he fulfilled the act later on by beholding. So God's plan of moderation, he says, if it's evil, if it's bad, if it's not good for, good for us, abstain. Stay away from it. There's no such thing as, I know this is bad, but I'm just going to eat it or drink it in moderation. That's foolishness. That's worldly thinking. The Bible teaches, abstain from all evil, from the appearance of it, let alone the actual thing. Now, that's interesting because here go God. He says, okay, well, I want you to stay away from this stuff. That's what God says. Are we clear on that? Amen? Now, let's go to the book of Proverbs 24. In Proverbs chapter 24, we get another balance to all this. Proverbs 24. We're going to go ahead and look at verse 13. In Proverbs 24 and verse 13, let's notice what the Bible says. Proverbs 24, 13. Who can read that for us? Nice and loud. Proverbs 24 and verse 13. What does the Bible say? Amen. So here it is, if it's evil, God says, stay away from it. But here it is, God named something that was good, and in this case, what was it that God called good? Honey. He called honey good. He said, eat thou honey because it's good. But watch what God says now in Proverbs 25, verse 16. What does God say in verse 16 of Proverbs 25? Jeff, if you could read that. Have thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be Wow. Biblical moderation. You see, biblical moderation, God teaches, if it's bad, leave it alone, period. Once you understand that it's bad, leave it alone, period. That's God's understanding. That's God's teaching of moderation. If it is good, verse, verse 13, God says, go ahead and eat it. But in verse 16, he says, eat so much as is sufficient for you lest you vomit it up. It is this principle that was spelled out right here in Councils on Diets and Foods. 
If it's bad, leave it alone, period. If it's good, use it judiciously. Broccoli is very good for you, but if you have it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, seven days a week, you will get sick. You understand my point? That's what God is trying to show us. So therefore, if you do this now, God says that this healthy diet will cause a condition and state of mind that will be healthy, and then when God sends his messages of truth from heaven, we'll be able to hear it. God will be able to show us the weaknesses that are still existing in our lives, and we can confess it and forsake it by his grace. Powerful, afflicting the soul. Well, the next step was offer an offering made by fire. Offer an offering made by fire. Let's go to Hebrews 12, 29. Well, let's go to Romans 12 first. Romans 12, Romans chapter 12, and then we'll go to Hebrews. Romans 12, In Romans 12, let's look at verses 1. Let's look at just verse 1. In Romans 12 and verse 1, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, let's read it together. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. So are we going to offer a dove or a lamb or any other type of animal? Is that what we're offering today? No. But what are we offering? We're offering ourselves. But what exactly is it about ourselves that we're offering? Let's go to the book of Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, God helps us to understand what it is that we are in fact offering. Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, we understand what we are offering. In Galatians chapter 2, what does the Bible say? Galatians 2. In verse 20, here's what the Bible says. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Let's read it together. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What you are laying on the altar is yourself and your own personal views. There is no room for you and I to come to Jesus and say, some of me, some of Christ. If we are truly going to make sure that we are preparing practically for the coming crisis as well as the coming Christ then we must begin to surrender our lives to Jesus. And what surrendering our life to Jesus means is the surrender of our choices. Let me read a quote to you from the book Steps to Christ. The book Samuel Pippin says we hate to read. Steps to Christ, a most wonderful book that ought not to collect dust. Did you know this book was not meant for us to just go out and give it to people, but we never read it ourselves? How many have ever heard of a term called righteousness by faith? You ever heard of that? Righteousness by faith? Did you know that that's what this book is? This whole book from beginning to end is the experience of righteousness by faith. And here it is. Many of us, we are quick to give it to other people. Oh, 25 million, 30 million sold and given out all over the world. But how many of us take time to read this book for ourselves to get our own benefit out of it? In Steps to Christ, page 47, the question is asked, Many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? It says, you desire to give yourself to him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Can anybody relate to that? It says, your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you, but you need not despair. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. It says everything depends on the right action of the will. What is our will? The power of choice. So when someone says, surrender yourself to God, 
What they're saying is surrender your choices. Give your choices to Jesus. Come to him and say, Lord, you now call the shots on my life. I will no longer choose what I want to do, how I want to dress, how I want to eat, where I want to go, how I want to live, where I want to live, who's going to be my partner, who's not going to be my partner. All of those decisions now belongs to Jesus because he's not just your savior, but he's also your Lord. This is what it means when it says you are offering yourself. It means that, Lord, I don't call the shots in my life anymore. I give up. I'm not calling the shots in my life. I have tried over and over again. And Father, I confess, I can't lead my life. I need you. Take all my choices. From now on, everything that I choose to do will be according to thy word. For man should not live by bread alone, but by how many words? Every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Offer and offering. But the offering had to be made by something. What did it have to be made by? What is this fire? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse 29. In Hebrews 12, verse 29, what does the Bible tell us right here? It says, let's read it together, one quick sentence. For our God is a consuming fire. So therefore, God is our fire. But what then really is this fire? Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4, we get an idea of what this fire really is. 1 John, the fourth chapter. And let's look at verse 8. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. What does the Bible say here? In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, the Bible says... He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, don't miss this point. The children of Israel had a responsibility while the high priest was in the most holy place. Number one, they were to make sure they're having holy convocation. Number two, they were to be afflicting their souls. And number three, they must offer an offering made by fire. You and I understand that we are to make an offering of ourselves to God. Our lives are to be surrendered to him, but the motivation behind it should be love. The motivation should be love. Why do I make that point? Let me, let me, let me read a quotation to you that, I don't know, it might even startle you. It says... In the book, Acts of the Apostles, page 318, it says, no matter how high the profession, he whose heart is not filled with love for God and his fellow men is not a true disciple for Christ. Please hear that, brothers and sisters. No matter how high the profession might be, it says, he whose heart is not filled with love for God and his fellow men is not a true disciple of Christ. It says, though he should possess great faith and have power even to work miracles, yet without love, his faith would be worthless. He might display great liberality, but should he from some other motive than genuine love bestow all his goods to feed the poor? The act would not commend him to the favor of God. In his zeal, he might even meet a martyr's death. Yet, if not actuated by love, he would be regarded by God as a deluded enthusiast or an ambitious hypocrite. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, he said, though, you give my, he said, though I can give my body to be burned... And have not love, it profits me nothing. Can you think of anybody who straps bombs around themselves and because they hate other nations so bad that they will actually go ahead, take these bombs, pull the, the switch, and blow themselves up and kill a whole bunch of people? Were they martyrs? Yes, they were. What was the motive behind it? Hate. Do you see how someone can literally take their life for a cause, but love is not the motivation? Do you know that self is actually the motivation? Because do you know what they're taught? They're taught that if you do this, when you ascend into heaven, you will have seven virgins waiting for you. 
and paradise. Some people have gone all the way down to the grave in the name of self. Let me ask you a question. Why do you do Bible studies? Why do you sing in a choir? Why do you do ushering at your church? Why do you do the different works that you do? Are you trying to be recognized by people? Are you trying to get some award? Are you trying to get somebody to look at you so they can say how great you are? What's your motivation when you do the work of evangelism? There are people who are doing call porter work, but money is on their minds. They're not thinking about the souls behind those doors that need the truth that we hold in our hands. Brothers and sisters, if we are not careful, we will find ourselves offering an offering, but it's not made by fire. It's made by self, and this is what the Bible calls strange fire. And we must be careful that when we do the work of God, that we are doing it because our hearts have been kindled by the love of Jesus Christ for our fellow man and for God's honor. Offer an offering made by fire. Finally, do no work. In doing no work, it's interesting. Doing, when it said do no work, it actually is the same Hebrew terms that come out of Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, when it says thou shalt not do any work. So it's talking about pulling back from secular activities. During the Day of Atonement, they were not allowed to do any type of secular activity. Because if they did, it would remove their focus of examining themselves and making sure all is well between them and their Savior. In fact, I want to read a quote to you here. This comes from Prophets and Kings, page 411. And it says, On one occasion, by command of the Lord, the prophet took his position at one of the principal entrances to the city and there urged the importance of keeping holy the Sabbath day. It says, The inhabitants of Jerusalem were in danger of losing sight of the sanctity of the Sabbath, and they were solemnly warned against following their secular pursuits on that day. You see, that's the reason why we do not work on the Sabbath. Because in our secular pursuit, it can cause us to lose our focus on what the day was trying to teach us. You see, how many of us are remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Is anybody in here that's remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy? No? None? We're kind of iffy on raising our hands, right? You ought to be. You know why? Write this down in Desire of Ages, page 283. We are told, in order for one to keep the Sabbath holy, one must himself be holy. When you carefully study the commandments of God, you will see that the fourth commandment is not simply calling you to do or not to do, but it's calling you to be. God is, how in the world can you keep something holy if you're not holy? Think about it. How could you do that? That's impossible. The Sabbath commandment calls us to submission to God so that we might experience his righteousness and his holiness so that we can keep the Sabbath day holy. It's a weekly reminder of what we are called to be every single day of the week. And the doing of no work was to help us not lose that focus. Well, since 1844, could we have stopped our secular pursuits since 1844? Could we have stopped or ceased our secular pursuits since 1844? Brothers and sisters, the answer is no. There's still going to be people with jobs. There's still going to be people who are going to be business people. Now, of course, you need to make sure that your job follows biblical principles. You know, you, you, you can't do certain, you can't sell alcohol and things of that nature. That, that wouldn't be the kind of job that you would do if you're trying to truly walk with Jesus and prepare for the coming of the Lord and help other people. You can't help other people come for the, you can't give out of steps to Christ while you're giving somebody Jack Daniels. I mean, that's just not going to work. So therefore, we have to make sure that our business operations are in line with God's principles. But here's the point that I'm making. What then is God really saying as it relates to do no work? He's saying, do not do anything that takes your mind off of me and the work I'm doing in the most holy place. At this time, there is a way that you and I can work and keep our minds stayed on God. And there's a way that we can work and not keep our minds on, this, on, this, on God. So therefore, what counsel do we have? Philippians chapter 4. 
In Philippians chapter 4, let's notice what the Bible says. What is God's counsel? Now, brothers and sisters, what I'd love for you to do, and I, I really mean this with all of my heart, but you have to be honest with yourself. In Philippians chapter 4, if you take what I'm about to give you, take every DVD that you own and put it to the test of Philippians 4 and verse 8. Take every CD that you own and put it to the test of Philippians 4 and verse 8. Take every book that you read and put it and connect it to Philippians 4 and verse 8. Ask yourself, does it fit? If it does not fit, not even in one point, get rid of it, brothers and sisters. God's counsel is cut it off, leave it alone, because you are living in the great day of atonement and you are getting ready for the coming crisis and the coming Christ. Philippians 4 and verse 8, the Bible says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true. If whatever you're watching even has one bit of a lie in it, if whatever you're listening to has one bit of a lie in it, leave it alone. You know, this world has messed our minds up so bad. We are entertained by lies, and many of us, we think that it's okay to mess around with certain lies, white lies, we call it sometimes. But in 1 John 2 and verse 21, the Bible literally says, no lie is of the truth. And Jesus is the truth. No lie, whether small or great, white or black, or any other color, no lie is connected to Jesus. I remember my children were watching a program called Veggie Tales. You might have heard of that. And years ago, my children were watching it, and one day I read this text, and it's like the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said, do cucumbers really talk? Do tomatoes really talk? And asparagus and potatoes, do, do all these things really talk? And what do you think the answer is? No. And God just showed me right there, no lies of the truth. No lie. Whatsoever things are true. You see how we watch biblical stories? We watch these reenactments of, the king, of king David and, and Daniel and Revelation and all this stuff, and people are just adding what they want to add into the movies. God says, uh-uh. Whatsoever things are true. So just from this very first sentence, you could see how much stuff we're going to need to get rid of. But it goes on to say, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Why, Jesus? Because as a man thinketh, so is he. Brothers and sisters, we are living in the time of the most holy place. Jesus is doing his final work. And the same way Jesus is in the most holy place and doing the final work of the blotting out of sin, God says that for you and I, he says, yes, you are here on earth, but he says, but this is your work. Holy convocation. Affliction of your soul. Offer an offering, but make sure that offering is made by God's fire and not by your strange fire. And he says, and do no work. Remove these things that distract. If there be video games, if there be any of these things, God says these things have to be removed if they're not true, honest, just, lovely, if they have good report. But I promise you this. As there are things that we must remove, there's things that we must embrace. And in our next study, I'm going to show you the greatest work that God has ever given to human beings. This study, brothers and sisters, is going to be on the message that God has given to his people. But you know what the problem is? Many of us, we understand the three angels' messages intellectually. But I wonder if many of us are experiencing the three angels. So our next study is going to be get to work. God's three angels' message, how to make it practical. By God's grace, I hope that I see you there, and let us close with prayer.
Heavenly Father, Lord, there will be no excuses for any of us, especially in this room. Father, you have showed us how close we are to the end of all things. You've shown us Jesus and his great work that he is doing in the most holy place in the sanctuary above. And now, Father, you have revealed to us our work and what we are to be doing during this time. I pray that you will settle these truths into the hearts of your people. And may we truly surrender our choices to you so that your will and your will alone shall be done. Abide with us now, we pray, and continue to keep us, especially to our next meeting, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.